Hello, and welcome to another episode of Political Economy. You may have noticed that this is not the normal intro to this podcast. That's because we'll be doing things a little bit differently from now on, starting with improved predictability. You will now be able to expect a new episode at the start of each week. And we may also sporadically release some midweek micro-episodes to keep up with breaking news. You'll also be able to find follow-up blog posts and transcripts at aei.org publication blog. This is all part of an effort to make this podcast better for you, the listener. So if you like these changes, please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends, and leave a positive review. If you don't like the podcast, please forget I said anything. So with that out of the way, let's get to my conversation with Derek Scissors. My guest today is Derek Scissors. He's a resident scholar here at AEI, uh, the chief economist of the China Beige Book, the author of China Global Investment Tracker, and an all-around expert on U.S.-China relations. He's here today to discuss our looming trade war with Beijing, how the U.S. should respond to China's growing power and influence, and much more. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Well, happy to be here, although I'm a little tired after last night. Okay, (laughs) love news. Love news. All right, so... As we're preparing this podcast, the president had promised $50 billion in tariffs against China. And then as we're sort of beginning this, there's a new threat um, that he will perhaps ask for $200 billion uh, tariffs and $200 billion more against China. You've written in favor of getting tough on China, but you oppose sort of this tariff, this ever-escalating tariff strategy. Why is this not a bad strategy to get China to do what we want it to do? I'm not exactly sure what we want China to do. Right. So you just so there are two problems there. What is our goal? Um, and in conversations with the administration for months and months and months, they have not, never been able to answer that question. And it doesn't mean that individual members of the administration can't answer the question. They do have a goal. It's just that the goal clashes from member to member. There's been a lot of talk about how Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin and USTR, United States Trade Representative Lighthizer, don't agree. Um, so if you don't have people within the administration agreeing on a goal, you don't have a clear goal. Even right. If, even if every... It's not that there's just too many goals. That's right. Goals, exactly. The that's goals right. don't necessarily that's right. sync together. If, if Lighthizer were sitting right here, he'd have a goal. The problem is that's not the administration's goal. So then, you know, with regard to this, the action last night in particular, um, this comes out of Section 301, uh, which is a section of one of the U.S. Trade Acts. And this investigation was started in August. You know, I was there at the beginning, and it was supposed to be about Chinese intellectual property violations. Right. So that's a real trade practice problem. It harms the United States. We're a very innovative country. China just takes that innovation away, doesn't give us credit for it. So comparative advantage doesn't work because we're good at innovation, and, and we don't get any benefit out of it in trade with China. But what we've moved to is we're not punishing companies that stole IP or use stolen IP. We're punishing everybody, right? It doesn't say tariff on some companies. It's a tariff on everything. And that means you have no incentive to change your behavior. If I stole IP or I didn't steal IP, I get the same punishment. I might as well steal it. So we've, we've lost the plot on what we were originally going to do. That's problem number one. And problem number two is for somebody following China, we know what really hurts the top of the Communist Party. It's big, centrally controlled Chinese data and enterprises. And we have an example right in front of us with ZTE. We're not targeting them either. We're targeting companies in China which export. Some of those are American companies. So getting angry at China, I'm all in favor of it. This isn't going to do what we need it to do. Right. So, the, so these tariffs, they're, they're focused on different products. So some of those products 
are the kinds of our, our technology products. They they are uh, uh, the kinds of things they're trying to you know get get better at. You have the sort of China twenty twenty five emerging technology initiative. So there is there a, any kind of like you know rhyme or reason to to how these tariffs are being applied against what products and well we started off with fifty billion dollars was supposed to minimize impact to U S consumers, which wasn't the goal. The goal was to go after IP violators. Right. And then we switch to minimize impact to U.S. consumers, but target exactly what you just said, those made in China 2025 technologies. The $200 billion announcement last night, we don't have any guidance at all. And there's no way that the made in China 2025 products comprise $200 billion of exports to the U.S. The reason the Chinese are emphasizing that is they're not really competitive in those areas. They're not exporting a lot. So hard to see the rhyme or reason in, in the tariff list so far. It's, it's, it's more, the, the rhyme or reason more, more comes from what the president said before, trade wars are easy to win. And what he means by that is we can apply tariffs to more goods than the Chinese can apply tariffs to because we import right. more from them. That's really the, the motivation here. We can go higher than they right. can. It's not targeting technologies or IP violators or anyone else. Right. And, and it seems that the president's focus, uh, you talk about there's some people in the administration that Sort of our, our incidents are the technology aspect. They're stealing the IP and this, you know, forced technology transfer. Uh, where the president seems to, I, I think he may have mentioned that maybe from time to time, but his focus is really on the very simple that there is a big bilateral trade deficit. Therefore, we are losing. Therefore, we need to get that deficit closer. That that we need to, we didn't narrow that deficit or eliminate it. That seems to be his his focus and. How does that? So how do so how do tariffs play into that? Well, that you know, if if you think that the trade deficit is a legitimate, a bilateral trade deficit is a legitimate target, which I don't, but the president clearly does, the tariffs are gonna are gonna shrink the bilateral trade deficit. It's gonna make it more costly for goods and services produced in China to come here. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to start making them all here. We'll probably buy them from other countries. So that isn't, may not affect the overall trade deficit at all. But the, the bilateral trade deficit with China, this is just a tax. We're taxing the bilateral trade deficit with China. When you tax something, you get less of it. That's what we're going to get. We're going to get less exports from China. Can we, but can we eliminate that? So there's balanced trade between the two countries? We, big number. Yeah, no, we could, right. I mean, the, the goods and services trade deficit last year was $337 billion. We'd have to take much stronger action than we're doing now. 10%, I mean, one of the attacks on China is they subsidize their products. Okay, so you put a 10% tariff on, they raise their subsidies 8%. They're still com- more competitive than other goods, and you, you, you get nothing out of it whatsoever. So yes, we could eliminate the trade deficit. That's not what these tariffs are going to do. And actually, I don't think the president wants to do that. I think he wants to show that he took an action no one else did, and the trade deficit shrank. Right. Not that it went away, but instead of 337, it was 287, something along those lines. Right. You can say like, hey, well, you know, maybe it's not perfect, but I, ju- I just got you $70 billion, and that's... so. So those, so are these, again, so the behavior of these tariffs are going to change is what? Are these tariffs just going to be on there forever? I mean, what is, you know, I'm sort of jumping ahead to the end of the podcast right. about the end game. <laughs> but what, I mean, what is, what will they, what will China be doing differently because of these tariffs that will be to our advantage or help us? Right. So we left, we've, we've gone away from trying to get them to change their IP behavior because we're not targeting those countries, those companies. I guess we could say what we want is to change your Made in China 2025 uh, policies. But as you just said, that's not really what the president wants. The president wants the bilateral deficit to change. Made in China 2025 is about the future for China, not about the present. Right. And, 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 and that plan is they're, um, it's a lot, they're, they're spending a lot of investment. They're subsidizing industries. 
uh, all in the effort to become sort of have leading companies and all these all these new technologies, including artificial intelligence and I think aircraft right. engines or something. They, I mean, that that to me, if if they want to become a you know a uh, you know move up sort of the economic economic ladder, not just be sort of this middle income country, this they need to do that. So it'd be very difficult to dissuade them from doing those subsidies. I mean, is that possible but that they're going to abandon this plan? I mean, how, how could they? Well, they're not going to abandon the plan. So China's had industrial strategy policies long before Made in China 2025. Right. They always have them. This right. is just a label that's got people's attention because right. they're moving into areas that they weren't in before, as you just right. said. So they're not going to abandon it. Could we get them to modify it? Sure. Um, if, we, if we kept tariffs on, the, on Made in China 25 products for 10 years... That reduces their export incentives. Like, okay, so the biggest market in the world isn't available. It kind of shifts their their policies, uh, but it doesn't help now. It's that's a that's a future gain. Um, if we wanted to really push them off those policies now, you'd have to take much more dramatic action. The, the president is right that the U.S. has leverage. China needs the foreign currency it gets from its trade in the United with the United States. But we'd have to take very dramatic action. We'd have to say something like, "Okay, well, you know, you exported 500 uh, and change goods and services to the United States last year, and next year the quota is 400 billion. We just took 100 billion dollars off of your surplus." Of course, the Chinese would retaliate against that. But that's the kind of thing that would make them change now. And this is the problem that you were suggesting. Made in China 2025 is, you know, it's not 2025. If we're acting against that, we're we're trying to deal with a future problem. But the president doesn't want to deal with a future problem. He wants to deal with a current problem. Right. And these tariffs actually. If we stuck to them with five years, they could have an effect over five years. But for now, they're not going to be enough to get the Chinese to change their policies. Right. And the president won't be able to say or tweet or what have you that, <laughs> that it's worked. Right. You know, it's not, you know, I think he would view someone saying, yeah, it'll work in five years. He would view that as, well, you're trying, you're trying to scam me here. This, right. this isn't a real policy. Right. Real policies have sort of immediate impacts. Right. And so I think, you know, putting what we, you know, our conversation leads to a natural conclusion, which is, the president wants to negotiate with the Chinese for immediate changes right. using this threat of long-term tariffs. And that what the Chi- when he did, when he put the $50 billion on, he authorized that, that, uh, that plan, the Chinese didn't start to negotiate. They retaliated. And he's trying to tell them, you're not going to win this war of retaliation. You better come to the table with a better offer than you've made so far. So I think the way we, we connect these two is the president's going to use, we can hurt you in the long term to try to get his best deal in the short term. But there will be retaliation and it'll have an impact on American companies and American consumers. If you want to get the best deal, if you want to you know, push the Chinese as far as, you, as, as they'll go, you have to suffer some pain first. This can't be a painless exercise. And I actually said that to members of the cabinet when we started. I said, if you're not going to stick with this for at least three years and accept some pain and some political costs, just don't bother. Um, so we, have to, we haven't seen the administration do that yet. The Chinese are not just going to say, OK, well, the U.S. threatened us with more tariffs. We'll just give in. You know, just kidding. Um, so to, to get the most from the Chinese, you're going to have to have some retaliation against American companies, some retaliation against American exporters, meaning jobs here. Right. Um, if you want to give in before that, if you want to have no tariffs and just have talks beforehand, you're not going to get that much. So the president's got a, got a choice here of get a deal right now that really isn't very impressive or, or, or put up with some pain, including pain for, you know, constituents who voted for him, like farmers. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I... When I, you know, when I read about this, it seems the, 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 sort of the consensus is that China believes they, they have greater ability to absorb that pain than the United States does. Do you think that's right? 
I think it's right so far. Um, you, you were talking earlier about we don't seem to have a, co- a clear plan. We haven't stuck to anything. You know, we had we, – we announced these tar- – we, we started this investigation. And then we announced tariffs that were different than the investigation. Then Secretary Mnuchin said the war is on hold. And then, you know, it wasn't on hold. So we keep bouncing around. If you're China, it's very frustrating because you don't know what U.S. policy is going to be. But you see no sign that the U.S. is willing to put up with pain. So this is one of those funny situations. We can inflict more pain on the Chinese than they can inflict on us. That's just true. But if we're not willing to put up with any pain, then we don't have a strong right. negotiating position. And so far, we haven't shown that willingness. I mean, you're concerned about sort of this technology issue. I mean, how serious of an issue is this? Again, it's, it, people say IP theft, forced technology transfer. Uh, what is really the impact of these two practices? Well, so there's the concrete impact, and then there's the the the, the impact. And these are and are our concern, our concern sort of economic, or are they or are they national security? Right. Um, so it's multi multi dimensional question. The concrete economic impact is hard to measure because you got to figure out well what would have been the value of something if the Chinese hadn't stolen it, and that is really difficult. But you're you're certainly talking about it the tens of billions of dollars every year, and you could be talking about it in the low hundreds of billions. Sticking with the economic side, the problem, what bothers me most is the number one American comparative advantage is in innovation. We have some great agriculture-producing states, but the whole country is good at innovating, and not just big advanced technology innovating, little innovating, little tweaks that, that people come up with their, in their garages. And if the Chinese are going to take that away from us, the, the theories that we have about trade don't work. Right? If you can't get your comparative advantage out of trade, the relationship doesn't work for you anymore. And so I, I, the whole idea of China stealing innovation, to me, is a fundamental threat to the benefits of the U.S.-China economic relationship. And how much they're stealing is secondary. We, we need to get them to do less. Otherwise, we're not benefiting. And, and did we sort of just not care as much before just because they just weren't as you know, big an economy? Right. They weren't as rich? Now, now all of a sudden, we, we see them as a, as, a, as a true sort of rival across the entire dimension of military, economic, ideological? Yes. I mean, there's no question that's a factor that as China's gotten bigger, there's a national security element in this as well where, okay, they were never stealing technology that could actually be competitive in a military basis, and now they're they're getting to that point. You know, their telecom equipment is only a little behind ours. Telecom equipment's really important in military relation, in military operations. Um, so there's a national security element. There's an economic size element. I, I got to be blunt. I think the, the president deserves credit. I think President Obama should have done this. I think President Bush probably should have done this. Now, maybe not the way President Trump did, is doing it, because I don't like tariffs, and maybe not in this kind of very, using very alarmist fashion, but the U.S. is overdue to respond to Chinese behavior. And as you said, size, national security, that's pushing us to act now when 10 years ago we, we, we didn't act. But um, yeah, we mentioned endgame earlier. The endgame is not going to be that China is not, or do you think maybe it is, that they are not going to be a technologically advanced country with te- across, you know, again, a, a variety of sectors, industries and technologies. It seems to me that, you know, they're very big country. They graduate a lot of engineers. Uh, you know, people can call them a communist country, but they're a very entrepreneurial country as well. It seems like they are going to be a, uh, an economic and technological rival no matter what we do. That's right. So you have a group of people that really wants to basically destroy the Communist Party. 
um, that's that's a very big goal. You have a group of people like me who says, look, China is going to be an important player on the global scene across all the dimensions you talked about, but we need to get them to cheat less. We need right. they can't they're not little anymore that they can get away. But with is that cheating. because it's really going to have that big of an impact, or is it be, or is it because we're worried about them suddenly having a breakthrough in some technology that changes the you know changes sort of the defense economic equilibrium, or is it because if we don't do anything, there's just not the sort of political support in the United States for sort of free trade and openness if if you say, yeah, but we're going to let them steal. that People just don't like that, and therefore we're not going to – in order to keep that kind of political support such as there is for free right. trade, we have to do that. So I, I think it's a second one, but I'm not a military expert. You know, if you had somebody here who would say, I'm really worried about a Chinese breakthrough in this technology or this technology, right. and then we could get a war over Taiwan or, or, or you know whatever – that may be true. I don't know enough. Right. What I'm more worried about is your second point, which is it's not just the U.S. There's a lot of uh, anti-trade rhetoric around the world. The WTO stopped moving forward in the middle of the last decade. We tried the TPP. I don't think it was a very good agreement and no chance of passing the Congress. We had you know, President Trump as a populist. It's not just him. Hillary Clinton reversed herself on the TPP. Senator Sanders is, a pop, is, is anti-trade. So we've seen a lot of weakening for trade support around the world and in the U.S. And if the second largest economy and arguably the largest trading country is still cheating and there's no pushback, of course Americans are going to say, "What? I'm not supporting this. I'll support free trade with Canada, even though the president's mad at them, but I'm not supporting free trade with China. And if you push the second largest economy out of the world trading system, it may fall apart. So we don't get better Chinese trade practices. What, that? what do you mean? Well, that China will fall apart? No, no, no. The world the oh, trading system no. may fall apart. I mean, what will happen is, you know, some countries will go with the U.S., assuming that we treat them well, and some countries will go with China, and we'll get it. We'll get a segmented world trading system instead of a global world trading system. So for me, the problem is the Chinese are undermining global open trade by their behavior. There may be a military problem, too, but I don't know about that. Right. Was it a mistake to open up to China, let's just go forget you know back to the seventies, but just like you know the World Trade Organization in two thousand. What what was the alternative? Because we've had you know you've, you look at where China is now, and you've had these these studies come out saying you know it's hurt certain segments of U.S. workers badly, certain communities very badly. Did we make a did we make a mistake? You know, sort of bringing China into the world trading system. Yeah, whenever I answer this question, I get angry phone calls from all my friends, including people at AEI. I think it turns out we made a mistake. I don't think that was clear at the time at all. When we let, when we negotiated, so what was the, the goal was what the goal was to turn this country. Uh, through trade, we were open them up, and maybe they weren't going to be Vermont tomorrow, but eventually they would end up being like South Korea over, you know, that, you know, that being that kind of country, a, a a relatively free democracy, democratic capitalist country. That's certainly what people like President Clinton said in the '90s. Right. I, I didn't have that view back then, and I don't think you need to have that view. What you wanted was a country that was going to move toward being a good trade and economic partner, and that's where they were moving. China restarted reform after Tiananmen. A reminder of, of what kind of government they have, but they restarted reform after Tiananmen. They, they, they made big, important changes as part of their negotiations with the U.S. and the WTO. And it looked like when we you know, agreed to let China in that they were really continuing to move in that direction. So it was the right call. You, this is a very big country, the world's largest population. You don't want to cut them out if they're, if they're trying to do the right thing. The, what happened was a new government came in in China after they got in the WTO, and they went, in a, they went backward. Uh, they went backwards slowly, and, and, but, but consistently. They've been going backward, in my opinion, for 15 years. So we had a China that was going forward to be a better economic partner. We let them in the WTO, and since then they've been going backward and just put a lot of strain on... on backward is just an economic partner, but, but as far as being a more market economy um, in sort of internally... Mm-hmm. 
Both. So, you know, for example, the main Chinese corporate reform now is not saying, hey, we like state-owned enterprises, but we're going to limit them to certain sectors. It's saying, we want one gigantic state-owned enterprise to dominate this entire sector and be competitive for China around the world. And of course, it's never allowed to go out of business. So that's the biggest subsidy of all. So in the 90s, the Chinese are negotiating in the WTO, they're shrinking the state sector. Since then, they've been expanding it. And so... It's, it's domestic reform in China. It's China trade with the U.S. It's China investment overseas. Why do you think, why do you think they changed directions like that? Well, I mean, like a domestic political sponsorship. Yeah. They just, it was too much freedom and too much challenge. I mean, because fundamentally, that's like the ultimate policy filter. How does, how does this impact the power of the Communist Party? And if it's bad for the Communist Party, then that's not going to pursue it. That would be my. I think, you know, people will accuse them of planning the whole thing in advance, like give the U.S. as many concessions as they need just to get them WTO and then reversing course. I don't think that was the case. I think you had, you know, difficult structural adjustment kind of reforms that we always talk about countries should make, we need to make in this country with regard to entitlements. And then when that government left, the new government came in and just kind of coasted. It was like, great, thanks for doing all the work. We're not going to do any of that. The the government that, that took over in 2002 and was in charge for 10 years was very corrupt. And this government in China, which replaced it in 2012, is a populist, anti-corruption government. And they want strong tools in the hands of the state, including economic tools. So I don't think there was a conspiracy on the Chinese side. I think they got, they got lazy and started to live off previous reforms, which many countries have done. And now what we have is a, is a Maoist kind of dictator. And he is not going to let the state's power over any dimension of society wither. No, it looks like they're also creating not only a you know, less sort of market-oriented economy, but also a really kind of dystopian <laughs> surveillance state that people worry about that we have here in the U.S., but we don't. But that is exactly what they're trying trying to create. And so, so when you look at so okay, so when you look at you know the direction of the economy, I thought that kind of economy wasn't supposed to work. That kind of centrally planned, uh, directed economy, they weren't supposed to be innovative. That they seem super innovative. How does that, how is that possible? It seems well, like a challenge to what you know. I you know Americans think that how you run a an innovative, growth oriented economy. Well, I'd say two things. I think China's debt position, which we can go into if you want to, shows it's not working. But with regard to innovation, there are you know, three pillars of innovation. Competition. Chinese don't have it. They don't like it. They suppress competition in a lot of sectors. They have some, but they don't have enough. You know, Government direction. We talk about the Moon Project and DARPA creating the Internet. The Chinese have a lot of that, a lot of government intervention. And then the third thing is they take stuff. Um, so you know, two out of the three pillars work in China. Are they going to be, ever be as innovative across the board as the United States? No, but they can be innovative in certain sectors. They get a lot of government subsidies. And then they'll have some companies that are international companies that are also innovative. So I, you know, they're going to be two-thirds as innovative as the United States. I, you know, that's, that's kind of silly. But they're not going to be 95% as innovative as we are, but they could easily be 70. Um, so, so that's why that, that innovation is not just about competition. Where it's about competition, China falls short. But where it's about resources um, and, and copying others, they do very well. Right. So, we, we, so our expectation for China, uh, I, think, I think when the uh, current president of China, it seems like he's president, President Xi is going to be president uh, for life. Was that kind of an eye opener? Or I think for the average person, they, if, to the extent you know, they, they follow China, they still may have thought there was some hope that China was going to go into a more democratic direction. But is that just 
that's just not going to happen. Well, it certainly doesn't look like it. Um, I, you know, we had on the economic side, we had people thinking that, you know, the previous government under Hu Jintao was very corrupt. This government was going to be more efficient. They were going to engage in brave reforms because they're bolder and stronger and all that. None of that has happened. And in fact, as I said, this is a 21st century version of Mao. They've moved decisively in the other direction on politics. Um, so I, I think it's very difficult you know, Xi Jinping has a lot of power, so he can change direction if he wants. But I think it's very difficult to see what where, what in his behavior says he wants to have a more market-oriented economy or a freer society. There's nothing. Right. I mean, some, I mean, some people have said, you know, it's sort of a unique threat. There's sort of a combination of Japan in the 1980s and the Soviet Union in the 1980s, where they're both sort of a military and economic threat. And it's not really a kind of threat or challenge, if you prefer, that we've ever faced before, is it? That, I think that's right. I mean, the, the Japanese were an economic challenge, um, not a security challenge. The Soviets were a security challenge, not an economic challenge. And the Chinese, you know, they're not perfect. As I said, they're running up a lot of debt, but they're, they're a challenge on both dimensions. We have not faced this kind of multifaceted challenge um, while in the post-war era. Um, and of course, you know, there are problems with their large population, they're aging. Right, I mean, still, we can also treat them as like they're right. super, and the present, right. like they're, that they're being run by these superhuman, <laughs> super intelligent engineers taking advantage of us. And uh, boy, you know, what, what, what are we gonna do? But, you know, they have problems. Yeah, they have serious problems. I mean, uh, I, we're at AEI. I don't think anyone in their right mind thinks that the U.S. federal government borrowing over the last 10 years has been wonderful. But the Chinese have borrowed much more than us. They used to have a very, you know, simple, uh, uh, not uh, uh, trivial debt position. They now have a larger debt burden than the United States, and that's occurred all over the last 10 years. That's how much they're borrowing. People are probably aware that China is aging very rapidly because of the one-child policy and lack of replacement. So when you're an indebted older country, you don't want to be middle income. China's not rich. So those are fundamental economic problems that they face. They're not geniuses. They're not marching through, you know, the, through history to inevitable victory. Uh, unfortunately, you know, that doesn't help us right now. Right. President Trump wants something to change right now. He's, no, he's, not, he's not happy that in 2040, China will be you know, stagnant or whatever. Right. All right. So, um, so, we, so you would prefer not going the tariff route. You would like to just, if, they, if, a, if we can show that a company has forced another company to give them technology or they've stolen IP, we should go after those companies. How do we go after those companies? All right. So we have a model which is based on sanctions, which is is the ZTE model, um, where ZTE broke American law and then was threatened with the stop sale of American components, which would which put the company out of business. Um, and that got China's attention because it's essentially controlled state-owned enterprise. So you look where look for companies that say, hey, you know, you didn't have this technology a year ago. You didn't say you were reaching, researching it. Suddenly you have it. And what's right. that? And you take those companies and you say, you can't do any business in the United States at all with any American firm. Right. And can't it, raise money, maybe can't raise right. money, and can't States. can't you know use U.S. banks to to to, to, to you know ex- clear financial transactions, and then if, if if what you've done is bad enough, if you've really harmed American workers and American industry, uh, we'll we'll look at global financial sanctions. We'll go get you overseas, and that will that goes right at Made in China 2025 because that the China, the whole idea is the Chinese are creating these global champions. Right. So you have to attune it to like how bad the problem was, but if you target five very large Chinese state-owned enterprises this way, you're going to get China's attention really, really fast, and you're not hurting American consumers at all by your own action. Right. Retaliation might hurt, but your own action isn't going to hurt. But, uh, but the example you gave as the model, ZTE, 
that's not working because we really don't want to bring the hammer down on these as hard as you would like to bring the hammer down that company. Yeah. So you must have seen that fine. This is it. This is, we get to see, we have a perfect example that we can then, you know, trans, you know, translate to other instances. And now we've sort of backed off on this company. Yeah. uh, I mean, I don't, the president's famous tweet in May where he says too many jobs in China lost. So we have to back off on ZTE. I I really, if I'd ever had an opportunity to speak to the president, I I would have said, sir, what do you think you're trying to do with your tariffs? Um, So that was very strange. Uh, You're right. We, we, we had the president take the the Trump administration, take an action that really put pressure on the Chinese, then walk away from it. Congress, on the other hand, recognized that that action was appropriate. So uh, you're right. There, uh, the president likes tariffs and he's focused on the trade deficit. It's very hard to get him to think about bringing the hammer down on individual companies because it's it's more complicated to explain. It's not going to shrink the trade deficit very much. Um, but if we want to get the Chinese to change their behavior, that's what you do. So we have this trade-off of do we want to sell this domestically as a political right. move or do we want to actually get China to change? How do you think this has been perceived by China? Because I, I would assume that Beijing looks at what happened to ZTE and thinking, never again, that we need to become more independent uh, so that, so we don't have so the United States doesn't have this kind of leverage uh, over us. I mean, there this would I, I would assume make them want to you know double down, triple down, quadruple down on uh, on on the sort of 2025 plan and more broadly uh, to not be dependent on the United States for technological components that their countries need that sort of thing. Now that's true. I would say, look, uh, Xi Jinping is a is a rather hard-nosed dictator. He didn't come into power in 2012 thinking, I'm fine with getting de- being dependent on the United States and then go, oh, ZTE, wow, I've totally changed my view. Right. They have been trying. The whole point of Made in China 2025 is to, is to suspend their way out of being dependent on the United States. They're not, they're not going to do anything different than they were before. You could say maybe the U.S. window is going to close over time and we, sh- we should act now. Um, the number one thing the U.S. has going for it over China is actually not technology dependence because they're the Germans. There are other places the right. Chinese can go is money. The Chinese are dependent on the dollar. They're dependent on money coming from the United States to maintain their balance of payments and so on. So um, you're, the Chinese are absolutely going to try to be technologically independent of us. That's that over time, they'll make progress on that. They were doing that before. We still have the opportunity now to act. And as I said before, global financial sanctions will work because the dollar is the world's currency. You can't do business if the U.S. doesn't want you to should, do Should we let American companies like you know open up research, you know, AI, you know, China wants to, you know, be advanced in AI. And you have American companies opening up AI research centers in China. Is that a good idea? You know, I really, and I'm, I know you feel the same way, don't want to be telling American companies they can't do things. So I would, I would, I would give ground to the Defense Department here and say, if you have a real national security point now, not someday in the future, this might right. be important, but if there's a national security-related technology now, then you can tell American companies they can't, they can't take those actions. And that's what export controls are supposed to do. Other than that, I'm not going to, I don't want to go the route of just like anything China does is automatically a loss to us. If there's a national security threat, you stop those companies from acting. Otherwise, you let companies pursue their own interests because that's the way you get rich. This is, this is sort of the, the big ask. How, how, does this, how does this current... How does this current round of escalating tariffs potentially end? Does it end with just some sort of uh, a, a deal that is struck, which uh, on paper would reduce the trade deficit, uh, but doesn't really address these kinds of kind of core technological issues? But but the president can say, I got a deal. Uh, this will lower the trade deficit by $70 billion. We win. Yes, I think that's where we're headed. I don't, I don't think the administration has shown the patience uh, and the unanimity 
to, to stick with a policy over years that's going to change Chinese behavior. You're not going to do that in 2018. You've got to stick with it through 2021 or whatever. So I think what the president is trying to do with these threats is bring to the Chinese, bring the Chinese to the table with a better offer on closing right. the trade deficit, whether it's but, allow us but to- But similar apply. to maybe their previous officers, but right. more. That's right. That's right. We, we did this. We did the $50 billion threat. Right. They said $50 billion. We went to $150 billion, you know, which we didn't implement or we just said we were going to. We go to the table. We try to negotiate with the Chinese. The Chinese are like, well, you know, we'll buy more. Right. And it wasn't specific enough for the president to agree to. So we went back. And now we said, OK, we're going to go to 250, right. which we can do and you can't. So that's right. We're trying to get a better result from the negotiating process before, where if the, maybe the president can come back and say, I got 100 billion. And even even AEI thinks this is a real 100 billion. It's not fake. Right. That's what he's looking to, to get. That's where I think we end up. Because the Chinese know that a low, low level confrontation, they're fine. The worse it gets, the more advantage it goes to the US. So it sounds like you would rather see you would have rather like not seen any of this tariff stuff done but get tough on ZTE than the opposite. Yeah. I, I think you know, the ZTE case is just one case. They broke American law. They violated Iran sanctions. The president wants to reimpose Iran sanctions. I would rather set the precedent of we're going to hurt your most high profile, most important companies than we're going to restrict trade, which may not involve violators of IP or Chinese companies at all, because it might be foreign companies exporting out of China. So, yes, I would much rather have gone the ZTE route than the tariff route. Derek, I think we're going to have to have you back on at some point because I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing issue. But thank you for your time today. It's fantastic. uh, I've enjoyed it. I'd be happy to be back on and just hopefully something doesn't happen tonight.